Osteobites is a weekly osteosarcoma webinar and podcast presented by MIB Agents. This week, we're talking with Dr. Lori Weiner, Co-Director, Behavioral Health Corps, Director, Psychosocial Support and Research Program, Pediatric Oncology Branch, Center for Cancer Research, National Cancer Institute, and National Institutes of Health, and Dr. Amanda Thompson, Chief Pediatric Psychology, Life with Cancer, Inova Shar Cancer Institute. Our topic is coping through cancer, tips for parents and caregivers. I'm your host, Ann Graham, MIB Agents President. Welcome to Osteobites, where the snack of the day is a chocolate-covered mini coconut bar. Despite its size, I'm very excited about our snack today. Um, it's gonna be delicious, as is our session. It's an honor to welcome these two brilliant women to Osteobites today, Dr. Lori Weiner, who's the co-director of the Behavioral Health Corps, director of the Psychosocial Support and Research Program, Pediatric Oncology Branch, uh, Center for Cancer Research, National Cancer Institute, and the National Institute of Health, and Dr. Amanda Thompson, who's the Chief of Pediatric Psychology, Life with Cancer, Inova Shar Cancer Institute. Our panel, our session today is a bit different than normal, uh, mostly because of the storm, which, well, who's nobody, nobody can pronounce the name of. <laughs> um, Isais has taken out a lot of cell service and internet. I also wanna start by saying MIB Agents makes it better MIB for kids with osteosarcoma. We help kids facing this aggressive cancer by providing direct patient and family support and education. If you're on this webinar, you know that osteosarcoma is the oldest known cancer with some of the oldest known treatments. So we also support the researcher and physician community with an annual conference through Osteobites and through funding meaningful osteosarcoma specific research. A mission of this size and Scope desires the hearts of many. We welcome your participation to make it better. In the meantime, Osteobites is rolling and Dr. Thompson, would you get us started by introducing yourself, please? Of course, thank you so much and thank you for having me here today. Um, as you mentioned, my name is Amanda Thompson. I'm the Chief of Pediatric Psychology and the Director of um, Pediatric Programs at Life with Cancer here in Fairfax, Virginia. Um, I spend the majority of my time in clinical work and clinical program development, and I'm very lucky to spend a lot of time collaborating with my good friend and colleague, Dr. Laura Wiener. You stole that from me. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, my name is Laurie Wiener, and you heard where I work. That was a very long um, list of places, but that's what happens with the NIH. I've been in this field for over 30 years. Um, I stopped counting after a while and I'm really honored to be here and um, love always every opportunity to work with my wonderful colleague Amanda Thompson who I pull into almost so many of the different projects that I work with and also just um, really just honored to be here talking to all of you because you really have been my teacher. So the objectives of our talk today is to begin by looking at how stress is even manifested by each of us. And then we're going to describe some differences in typical coping styles because we all have our own different coping styles. And from there, we're going to introduce a number of different coping strategies and self-care practices that you could use at any point in time, at home or wherever you go. 
So to begin with, I don't need to tell you that just the diagnosis of osteosarcoma is, is totally life-changing. Everything changes. Your life completely changes after the diagnosis is made. The way that you view things, the way that you view statistics, risks, even the word rare has new meaning for you. And you're just what's important changes over time. Your tolerance for things that don't really feel very important anymore, for drama changes, how you even experience empathy may change. Um, things that you're so much more empathic for or some things less empathic for. But for many people, they'll just say it's just easier to let the little things go, the things that really bothered them before, while their expectations for everything seems to change, expectations for your child, for your family, for your life. Once you're starting with treatment and restricted functioning, perhaps, and how social events and social interactions may change, and just even just planning for the future with an uncertain prognosis changes everything. But along with that comes gratitude, and gratitude can come from the most unexpected places. I love this quote. Sometimes the things we can't change end up changing us. So we're going to begin by the first and that is just determine if stress is really impacting your life. We all have stress, but is it impacting your life? So the first, I just show this because I love this diagram. A lot of people say, yeah, I'm doing great. I'm just, I'm really fine. And then you look at the body language and it's anything but um, that they're feeling okay. And we see this a lot of times with kids with their heads down, but even with adults. You know, and there's a saying that says, if you've had a hard, stressful day, you're most likely able to restore your powers by just getting a good night's rest. But if you continue to experience hard, stressful days, like living with um, a child with osteosarcoma or any cancer, the damage will become too deep-rooted to be restored, and we don't do something about it. And in this way, there's a stress cascade could develop. And without attention, it could become irreversible. So hopefully you're going to take away different techniques and different tools today to be able to be able to make that not an irreversible process. So how is our stress manifested? Well, it manifests first just in physical signs. You may recognize some of these yourself. You may find, why am I getting sick so often or having cold so often? Or I have a headache or my stomach is just not the same. You might find that you just have insomnia or have difficulty um, staying asleep, or you may find that you're just sleeping more, but your sleep habits just change. People often talk about just increased appetite or decreased appetite, change in, in sexual libido, just, you know, it's not my interest anymore, or just things that just change in your relationship, changes in bowel habits, you're in the bathroom all the time or can't go to the bathroom. People talk about just this sense of overwhelming exhaustion. It's just even if you get a good night's sleep, I'm just still exhausted. Some people find different things that they're looking for to help themselves feel better. You got to get up the next day, got to get some more caffeine, got to be on. And that could be anything, you know, that you find over the counter or in different ways. But over and over, people talk about worry. You know, it could be maybe I'm getting sick or something more is going on, but I can't pay attention to that right now, even if something is pretty obvious. But a stress also manifests itself in different emotional signs that you may recognize in yourself or others. Anxiety, that it could just be a persistent feeling that you know you're out of your body or it's just a tension that you're feeling that just feels a little out of proportion to what's happening right then and there. It could be just feeling a little apathetic, you know, just, I don't even care so what if 
what somebody is talking about. It could be different and we talk about a fine line between being sad and being depressed, but it could be characterized as just feeling sad all the time, or just a loss of interest in things that was once really important to you. It could just be more of a cognitive, like a mental fatigue, you know, just like I just can't concentrate anymore. Different thoughts are going through my mind. I'm just not able to stay on target. Um, or just even thinking or reading a book or anything like that just feels like an enormous effort. Or you could find yourself just being really irritable. Things that used to roll off your back now no longer just roll off your back. You just find things very irritating. You may find yourself just a little bit more to anger a little bit more often. You may find yourself a little bit more argumentative. Just things to, that could just show they're part of our stress. So what do we do with all that? Well, the next step is to say, what is my coping style after all? The thing that we don't often think about. Well, what is my coping style? I just do what I need to do, right? Just to get through what I need to get through. So there are different kinds of coping styles. Think about it. Are you someone who likes to know everything about what's gonna happen? when it will happen? Are you someone who craves a lot of information or just the big picture? Are you someone who likes to know a little bit at a time? Just like, just tell me when the scan results come back. I don't need to know everything that you may be looking at. Are you, does it happen to help you if, to be able to talk to other people when things are hard? Are you just, I'm just like the type of person I just didn't work this out on my own. Think about that. And then we think about um, different types of how much information we want to be able to have. And so, you know, we all have our preferences for that. And in psychological terms, we, we talk about monitors and blunters. So the monitors are people who seek detail, a lot of information. And the blunters like to avoid anything but absolutely the most basic facts of what I absolutely need to have. And these pictures underneath there are a little bit of an exaggeration, but let me take you through these two different types. So monitors, as I said, they want to have as much information as possible. And that's great to want to have as much information as possible, but there are risks associated with it. Too much information, it could be distressing. Um, you don't know what to do with all that information. How do I integrate it? You could start being really sort of obsessing about the fact that I missed something. I didn't read this one thing and maybe I read it incorrectly. And then, you know, there's a quote that says, Dr. Google is distress monitors what Halloween is to kids. Both eat until they are sick. For blunters, wish to avoid any major details. I don't want to be able to have every little thing that can go wrong. I mean, if you read an aspirin bottle of all the things that can go wrong, you hear the infomercials, you probably don't want to take that either. But there's risks also. You know, it may not have sufficient information to make informed decisions if you really don't want to have a lot of information. And for me, in my own clinical experience, um, for people who are more blunters, um, often become spectacular monitors when it comes to their kids, but blunters when it comes to their own healthcare. So they may just wanna know anything that could be going wrong with themselves, just to be able to put all their attention on their child. Or you may find stresses in a relationship because one partner may be more of a blunter and the other may be more of a monitor. And one can't believe if his or her partner doesn't want to seek out more information on different kinds of treatments. So that's why it's good to be able to know what your learning style is, to talk about these things openly. And most people fall in between these two. Again, nice to know. 
The next is to think about, are you, do you tend to be more of an internalizer or an externalizer when it comes to your feelings? And it's probably easier to be able to see this um, in your own children. Warning signs that you could look for. So an externalizer, you recognize any of these, somebody who just can't be able to keep it in. You know right away if they're upset or they're mad or they're angry. We get a little more concerned when the people are more internalizing, and many of us are. You know, we just think that we can hold it all together, um, keep it all internal, just as you hear, you know, you think of the word internalizing. But that also can be worrisome sometimes because it's got to come out at some point in time. And then a person may just feel like they just need to be able to explode at some point in time, or it's going to come out in more of those physical signs that we talked about, a ways that we hold our stress. So then we go and we think about coping strategies. And at this point, I turn this over to my colleague. So now that you've given some thought to your coping style, we're gonna switch over to coping strategies. And to give you a little roadmap, we're gonna talk first about the difference between active and passive coping. And then we're gonna talk about a wide range of self-care practices with some special attention to your social connections, to relaxation and mindfulness, to your thoughts and to communication. And the first is to just take a moment and to ask yourself a question. What has helped you in the past when you've faced other challenging life circumstances? Most people, most parents have found some strategies that have worked for them under other difficult circumstances. And that's great. We want you to use those. We want you to be comforted by the fact that you're not starting from square one. You're not starting from scratch. We can always add to those, we can always tweak those, um, but you, you have strategies in your toolbox and that's great. We wanna trust those and we wanna build on those. Another important point is that when it comes to times of stress and distress and these tough times that we're in, some parents believe that they should be stoic and not necessarily show their emotions, especially in the presence of their child, of their children. And I don't necessarily agree with that. Um, there has to be a balance, of course. Um, yes, kids do pick up on emotions of their parents. So if you're feeling overly anxious, it is true that your child can feel some of that anxiety. However, being open with your emotions really does create an environment that gives your child permission to be open with their emotions as well. It allows them to talk about their emotions and lets them know that in our family, this is okay for us to do. What's more, as you then engage in self-care practices, you are setting an example for your child. You're modeling adaptive coping for them, showing them that when we have these emotions, we manage them and we manage them in this particular way. So you are, as you well know, your child's best teacher. When it comes to coping strategies, not all coping strategies are created equally. And in the field of psychology, we make a distinction between active coping and passive coping. Active coping is what we think about, um, a term that we use problem-focused coping. So this is really our cognitive and behavioral strategies that we use to deal directly with the challenge and its effects. This could be attempts to change our habits or to actively problem solve when an issue arises. 
This is in contrast to passive coping. Another term that we use for passive coping is avoidant coping. So this is when we make cognitive attempts to avoid actively um, confronting the problem that may be in front of us or engage in behaviors that really are meant to indirectly reduce the distress that we're feeling. So that could be avoidance, that could be wishful thinking, or just hoping that the problem will go away. Another distinction is that active coping is really when we're relying on our own internal resources that we have to directly cope with that stressor. While passive coping, we kind of throw up our hands and relinquish that personal responsibility. And we end up relying on others or on external factors to resolve that situation. We hope that something else will take care of the problem for us. Now, as you can probably imagine, Active coping has been found to be associated with much more adaptive adjustment and with a sense of self-efficacy or the fact that I can be successful when faced with a problem. Whereas passive coping has been associated with poor adjustment and even with depression. And in the context of childhood cancer specifically, this active coping, the problem-focused approach and less reliance on the more avoidant coping has in fact been, been um, found to be related to lower levels of both anxiety in, and depression in parents of children with cancer. So one strategy, one particular cognitive strategy for dealing directly with challenges in an active way is focusing on what you can control. So certainly from the time of your child's diagnosis, so much of your situation your child's situation, your family's situation has been out of your control. From your child's blood counts, to the results of the next scan, to whether or not your child is gonna spike a fever, to how long the wait is gonna be in clinic is out of your control. And that can be incredibly stressful and distressing. But if we work to focus and refocus again and again on the aspects of your day-to-day that you have control over, what we know is that it really can bring you into a better headspace mentally. And I get it, it's very much easier said than done. And it often requires conscious redirection, but it's an incredibly helpful mindset that can point you towards those aspects of life that you can target for problem solving. So if you look at the graphic here, that could be your sleep routine, when you ask for help, how you speak to yourself, hopefully with some kindness and compassion, what you're eating, the boundaries that you set. This is a graphic that came up recently when it comes to the COVID pandemic. And so the things that you cannot control and that you may have to let go of are if others are following the rules of social distancing, um, the actions of others, the amount of toilet paper at the grocery store, how long this will last, but the things that you can control and that you can focus on include your positive attitude, your own social distancing, limiting your social media, turning off the news, finding fun things to do. And I challenge you all to think about creating a similar model related to childhood cancer in your experience, the things that you cannot control and therefore may have to let go of, and the things that you and your family can control and can focus on. So when it comes to self-care, there really is no one-size-fits-all approach. What works for mom may not work for dad, and what works for you as parents may not work for your children. So you really have to find out what works for everyone, what works for you, and you may need a number of options. 
because what we know is certainly that self-care is critical for your physical and emotional health, especially during tough times. But it's often during those tough times that parents let self-care slide, when arguably that's when you need it the most. I always use the oxygen mask analogy that you have to put that oxygen mask on yourself before you can put it on your child. Meaning that you have to make sure that you're caring for yourself so you can continue caring for your child in the way that you want to and the way that you hope to be doing for the future. And that oxygen, that self-care, that need for self-care increases exponentially during emergencies. And certainly you can conceptualize going through childhood cancer as an emergency. If you don't like that analogy, you can use the old adage of you can't pour from an empty cup and you really do have to fill your own cup before you can help your child. So when it comes to self-care practices, we wanna think about the ones that impact both your physical health and your mental health. With your physical health, you wanna be thinking about taking your medications as prescribed, going to your own doctor's appointments, eating well, practicing good sleep hygiene, making time for exercise. On the mental health side, that may include maintaining a routine, injecting fun and joyful moments into your day. That's where you can get your family involved and your child involved, brainstorming ideas about what you might be able to do. Finding moments to express gratitude and think about things that you are grateful for. That can be something done individually or it can be done as a family around the dinner table, thinking about two or three things you're grateful for in that day. It's been shown to have a real impact on mental health outcomes. You also wanna take time to process your negative thoughts and emotions, and you may need and want to do that with the help of professionals. Certainly, as you know, mental health professionals are helping families work through difficult issues and develop healthy coping skills. And now, especially, more and more are offering that support through telemedicine. So don't hesitate to reach out if you're finding that you need additional support. There are other strategies, click, that cut across both physical and emotional health and impact both of those outcomes, whether that's staying engaged with your spiritual practices and community, staying connected with your loved ones, engaging in relaxation and mindfulness practices. When it comes to staying connected, you really wanna be thoughtful about cultivating and relying on your social support network of family and friends because we have years and years of research that shows us that that social support does in fact reduce feelings of distress and contributes to positive mental and physical health. And it most definitely reduces isolation. Isolation, as you may know, is certainly one of the many painful challenges that families of childhood cancer experience during and after treatment. Many parents feel that they can't leave their child's side or they feel guilty if they have to leave the hospital to go do whatever, to go do things um, when their child can't. And it can often feel like nobody else you know understands what you're going through. For this reason and for many others, it's okay to utilize social support on your own terms. As much as you may be feeling um, isolated uh, during times, during your child's treatment, it's also okay to not want to connect with people sometimes, especially during, uh, especially if those people exhaust or frustrate you. Um, you can control 
how much you interact with others. And you can do so even through communicate, communicating through social media platforms like Facebook or a CaringBridge site. Um, and in that way, you can choose to take a moment to see the love that others offer you through those platforms and feel supported. But at times, maybe when phone calls and visits um, don't feel like the kind of support that you need. Another option for staying connected, another important thing to think about when it comes to staying connected, click, is asking for um, help. Um, something that is very difficult to do, but is very necessary to do. We really want to encourage you to, to not be afraid to ask for that help, um, to ask for someone to stay with your child for a few hours um, so that maybe you can get out and refresh yourself or to set up a coffee date might have to be a Zoom date now, but to set up a coffee date with a friend so you can kind of get out of that cancer environment for a little while. And in doing so, you're really giving the people who love you and love your child an opportunity to do their part. Um, you also um, might be giving your child a break. Um, hate to say it, but it's true. Sometimes your kid might need a break, especially if they're a teenager. Um, and in the end, you're going to be a better caregiver for it. Another coping strategy that's very important is finding opportunities for relaxation. And just like when I mentioned with self-care, there is no one-size-fits-all when it comes to relaxation. So relaxation for you may be taking a bath. It may be taking a walk or walking the dog or petting your dog. It may be meditation or yoga, listening to music, um, doing art or journaling. But it also can be something that we hear a lot about, which is practicing deep breathing. Um, and I want to take you through three deep breathing strategies, very simple, but very um, easily learned so that you can have those in your pocket if you're feeling um, distress, if you're feeling stress, anxiety, keyed up, and you want to have those tools that you can use at any moment, anywhere. So the first breathing strategy is called take five breathing. And this is actually one that I teach children all the time, but I realized as I was teaching children that I really liked it and it really worked for me. So I think it works quite as well in adults as it does in children. And it's very easy, but I encourage you to do this with your kids as well. Um, it basically involves just holding out your hand like a star, using your other hand, the pointer finger, and you're just gonna be tracing the outline of your hand, but as you do so, as you go up onto one finger, you're breathing in, and as you're going down on that same finger, you're breathing out. So you're going slowly and breathing in when you trace up a finger and breathing out when you trace down. And so you continue along the entire hand, going slowly, breathing in and out, and noticing how that feels. When you get to the end of your hand, you've done five deep breaths. I often will go back, so I usually end up doing 10, but it's a really nice way to have a visual and to have something to focus on while you're doing that breathing. The second breathing technique is called four, seven, eight breathing. And this breathing is really, really effective, particularly in helping you fall asleep at night. So this pattern of breathing involves an inhale for a four count, holding of your breath for a seven count, and then exhaling for eight, for a full eight count. So the exhalation is twice as long as the inhalation. 
And this particular pattern, as I mentioned, is really good for sleeping. So you would take a big inhale, two, three, four, and hold it, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and then exhale, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. And you would repeat that several times. And then last but not least, is a technique called square breathing. Um, I found out recently that this is a breathing technique that's actually used by the Navy SEALs. So I figure if it's good enough for the Navy SEALs, it's definitely good enough for me. Um, and this breathing technique is really, really helpful when you're experiencing some acute anxiety. It helps to bring your heart rate down um, and your breathing rate down. And there's a symmetry to this breathing that's really, really helpful. This involves breathing in for a count of four, holding your breath for a count of four, breathing out for a count of four, and holding your breath for a count of four before repeating. So it's really that last holding of your breath that's a little bit different. We're used to exhaling and then breathing in right away. Um, so it takes a little bit of practice to get used to the structure, um, but that symmetry really helps with bringing your anxiety down and bringing your heart rate down. So it's a simple breathe in, two, three, four, hold, two, three, four, breathe out, two, three, four, and hold, two, three, four. And you would repeat that several times. So those are three very simple, but very effective strategies that you can use literally anywhere. Mindfulness is a wonderful coping strategy, and I think everyone has heard the term. It's one of those buzz terms that is kind of everywhere these days. Um, but in case you're unsure what it actually means, mindfulness is really about focusing one's awareness on the present moment, or calmly acknowledging and accepting your feelings, your thoughts, and emotions without judgment. This is really a practice that helps you navigate moments when you're feeling overwhelmed, helps you tolerate your distress, and helps ground you in the here and now. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of different mindfulness strategies, and I definitely encourage you just to do a Google search of mindfulness strategies, and you will come across many of them. There's mindful eating. There are meditations, all sorts of things that you can do, and you can find one that really speaks to you. I'm gonna just share with you my favorite technique. So the mindfulness strategy that is my favorite that I use very often is a grounding technique, meaning bringing you into the present moment called 54321. And this is a technique that engages all of your senses, really brings you into the present moment. I find myself using this technique most often when I'm taking a walk and I notice that I'm not in that moment. Instead, I'm thinking about what I should be doing um, and all the things that I'm gonna have to do after my walk, and I'm not actually utilizing that break time for what it's meant to be. And really what it's about is using those senses, bringing yourself into the moment. You can even do it right where you're at right now. So the first thing that you do for number five is you simply notice five things around you that you can see. So in this moment right now, I'm noticing a crack in the paint on my wall. I'm noticing some dust on my computer screen. And I can find three other things that I can see around me. The next thing is you're gonna notice four things that you can touch around you. 
So right now, that's the smooth wood of my desk and the fabric of my sweater. Next, you're gonna notice three things that you can hear around you. Right now, of course, I hear the sound of my own voice. I hear the fan behind me. And I actually hear a car driving outside. And next, you're gonna notice two things that you can smell in your environment. So for me, it's the laundry detergent of my clothes, and it's the lunch I had earlier that's still sitting at my trash can. And then last but not least, you're gonna notice one thing that you can taste. And for me, it's the iced coffee that I had with my lunch. So this strategy can be really helpful again to bring you, pull you out of that, mind, that place in your mind where the distress lives and ground you in the moment in the environment around you. Thank you, Amanda. And you'll realize there's gonna be a lot of um, overlap because they really all work together, our emotions on our body and the way we think about things. So this part is really about not trusting all your thoughts. You know, I don't know how many times that you may have negative thoughts in your mind. This is never going to end. I never get this right. I always fail and mess this up. You may even be saying to yourself now, I never get help from any of these webinars. But, you know, when we turn and we have those thoughts that run through, the, through our minds, we assume that they're very true even though in many cases, they're very false. And we take these thoughts very seriously. Some negative thoughts are equivalent to a party crash or people talk about the drunken loudmouth that's behind you at the stadium. If you're gonna take anything home with you, in addition to those wonderful tools that Amanda just shared, just know that anxious thoughts are often unreliable narrators. You may already know that. And you many know that these thoughts are just inaccurate. And you may find yourself in a shouting match inside of your body, inside of your mind. You may find yourself defending yourself against these thoughts and then getting to, into more of a battle. But they only come back louder, right? They only come back meaner. And either approach is going to make you feel awful inside your head because you end up being at the mercy of your thoughts. So what to do? We could change how we relate to our thoughts, just the way we talk about how we relate to other people. There may be some toxic people in your life that you just need to be able to say, this isn't working for me anymore. So instead of empowering this neg negative cycle, we empower ourselves in order to really think about what's most important to us so that we could feel better. The key, really, is to be non-judgmental for these thoughts and a way to be more gentle with ourselves. This little quote over here works perfectly. Don't try to judge or analyze the thought. Don't give the thought more attention. You know what happens when a kid says to you, when you say to a child, don't touch, what's the first thing they want to do? Is they want to be able to touch it, right? So let's not give the thought more attention than it deserves. How can we be able to let that go? So there's five steps that we think about. The first is just to acknowledge, I'm having that thought. You're not going to, to deny it is not going to help you at all. I'm noticing that I'm really worrying about this next appointment. I'm worrying about this next scan. I'm having the thought again, whatever that might be. Just acknowledge it. And then give it a label. So you make up your own label. For me, it could be, all right, here, Miss Anxiety, you're back again. Or, you know, Nervous Nelly, you're returning. Whatever label works for you, for those thoughts that keep interfering with your life. And then remind yourself that it's just a thought. And this thought is eventually going to pass. It's not a part of me. It's I'm big enough to let it go. 
I don't need to carry this around with me because it's not going to allow me to be the best version of myself that I want to be. And then you can ground yourself. And I think that this really brings you back to some of the, some of the different techniques that Amanda just went over with you. Just bring you back to know that you're here. You're here and now, and that thought doesn't have to go with you. And what I'm just going to do is just going to breathe in and I'm going to breathe out and I'm going to find a way to be able to let that go so I can be present right now. Most people be able to do that by having some kind of a visualization. So for everyone, it's just a little bit different. You know, for some people, it may be a leaf on a stream that you watch go by, or it could be just watching, thinking about a cloud that's just going to be able to dissipate. You know, when you think about the smoke that goes up from a tower and it's dark and then it eventually goes away. Um, active birds becoming quieter as they fly away. Whatever works for you, but find that visualization. So the takeaways for the thoughts is that when you feel like the thoughts are running your life, make sure you know what really matters to you most. Who's in control? Are you going to be in control or is, or is your thought going to be in control? Is your anxiety going to be in control? Or are you going to control your anxiety? Because we can't get today back. So when you have these days, when you're just like in three days from now, my child's scam is going to be happening and I can't get that out of my mind. I just, I, I'm just a mess for three or four days or even longer than that waiting. Well, you know in your head that no matter how much you worry, that's not going to change the results in three or four days from now. Some people will say, okay, I'm going to wait for that morning and then I can be anxious that morning because today you can't get back. And those thoughts are going to take away from what you want to be able to do and what's most important to you today. And again, as I said before, being that best version of yourself, you are in charge. We just sometimes forget that. And then it's the power of the word of a word. So the word, but what happens when we replace the word, but with the word and for example, I really want to do that puzzle with my kids, but I have too much work to do, or I have to read about another clinical trial. The word but takes away the value of what is before it, what you really want to do, what's most important to you. So think about some other examples where that can really get in the way. You may have a child who says, I really want to go see my friends, but I'm in too much pain. I really want to see my friends and you're in pain. Or I really want to play that video game with my friends, but I'm going to have to go to the bathroom and I'm just going to blow it. I really want to play that video game with my friends and I may have to go to the bathroom. It changes the meaning. And so that you can be able to stick to what's most important to you. It may be the social interaction. It may be that quality time with your, with your friends or with your children or for your children to be able to do what they really want to do. It's pretty amazing how much that word but stops us from doing the things that are most important to us. And then we take about communication, how we communicate. And for this, it falls into coping because it's something called dyadic coping. So we know that stress in a relationship can cause increased anxiety. We know that it can cause increased depression. Um, we talked a little bit earlier about the difference between a monitor and a blunter and how different coping styles can impact a relationship. But what is dyadic coping? And that is a process where the coping reactions of one partner takes into account the stress signals 
in the other partner. So it's not what the other partner is going to do to help you. It's how the other partner feels. So it's dyadic when both partners are involved in this and really their interactions are confined to helping the other person cope with their stress. So when I teach this to um, professionals, I use this example. Um, so I'm gonna just, something you may be able to relate to. Imagine um, a mom is in the room with her little girl, Janie, and Janie's fever, and they're in the inpatient unit and Janie's fever is going up and the fever keeps going up and mom calls um, the nurse and the nurse comes in and says, Janie's you know, fever is going up, get the doctor, please get the doctor. And the doctor doesn't come and she calls the nurse again and she says, where's the doctor? And the doctor doesn't come. And then she calls her partner or husband who's at work and says, the doctor's not coming and Janie's fever is going up. And the partner says, what do you want me to do? I'm at work. That would be an example of not dyadic, not good dyadic coping. And the chances are there's going to be a higher likelihood of conflicts. This mom's not going to call him back again. But then you think about the same example as the mom is in the room, the inpatient unit, and Janie's fever is going up, and she calls the nurse, and, and the nurse says, I called the doctor, but the doctor didn't come, She's, and the fever can, continues to go up, and mom calls the nurse back again, please call the doctor, and the doctor doesn't come, she calls her husband at work, and, and she tells him what's going on, and the husband says, oh, I'm so sorry, you have to deal with this by yourself. What could I do? Would you like me to be able to try to be able to page the doctor? And the mom may say, yes, thank you, that would be great, and I completely stressed you out at work, and now you're going to be a mess at work. So they recognize how each, this could impact each other, and that's an example of dyadic coping, where you're going to have a positive outcome, because the relationship becomes a resource. It's a sense of we-ness. We're in this together. So we have different examples that you could think about in terms of dyadic coping and communication. So you could think about your own relationships. And I'm not saying that any of you do, you know, have negative dyadic coping styles, but just to be able to think about it. It could be with your partner or it could be with your child or other people in your life. So we think about a supportive dyadic coping is when you feel like you show true empathy and understanding for what your partner may be going through on an emotional level, where a negative dyadic is that, you know, they never really get it anyway. A, a supportive dyadic coping may be my partner expresses that he, she's on my side. You feel like that person's got you back. Or it may be my a negative style, maybe my partner provides support but does so unwillingly. Listen to your mother and walks out of the room, for example. A dyadic coping style could be, um, supportive style would be when I feel stress, I talk to my partner openly about what I feel. I just need your support on this one. I just, uh, I'm really stressed about this. And the negative style is that you never cope with this well. You're always running out the room. You're always yelling at the doctor, for example. And more often, you know, you think about a way that you could have a common dyadic coping where we engage in conversations and the problems and think about what has to be done together. So again, you're looking for that sense of weeness in, in coping strategies. You, people think that, you know, a great coping strategy in a relationship is a person coming and saying, I'll do this for you. Okay, I'll, I'll go to the store for you, or I will call the doctor. It's really the best relationships. We'll talk, people will talk about the fact that they get me. They understand what I'm going through. You know, they allow me just to be myself and to be able to hear what's going on with me on an emotional level. And they could do that back and forth from each other. Like, I know what's going on at the end of the day to talk to each other, what happened with your child but how are you doing? How are you holding up? That's a different conversation. 
And then I really think about regrets and we all have them. And I know for parents, I hear about this all the time, especially from my research with bereaved parents, because that has really taught us that parents have regrets and for many have had a sense of unfinished business. In fact, at the last study that we had done, it's about three quarters had, had regrets and about um, a third had a sense of unfinished business. And a lot of what happens is for this is about communication and how quality communication can help. So using dyadic coping strategies so that you don't feel like you're alone, that you've been able to be able to talk about issues that were really important to you, or being able to really talk openly and honestly with your child about hopes or fears or anxieties, that could be able to help so much that you feel afterwards that you were the very best parent you were able to be at that time. Amanda talked about self-care. I think when you talk about regrets or you talk about parenting and we all feel like we can do a better job, but remember the difference between cause and intent. So it may have been something you said, or it may have been a decision that was made that caused an end result, but it was never your intent to do anything but to be the best parent you could be to your child. So think cause and intent. So in summary, <clears throat> Understand your own and your family members' coping styles. You can go back and just to say, hmm, am I a blunter? Or to be able to go back and to be able to say, hmm, you're a bit of an externalizer. <clears throat> Not to give labels. But you could fill your toolbox with new coping skills, whether it's breathing or the way you're thinking, mindfulness approaches. Think about quality communication and how you communicate with people in your family or how people communicate with one another and how it may be able to become a little bit more dyadic. And just work on prioritizing that self-care that we talked about. And I love this because it's, you know, you're going to be critical. You're going to become a little bit more compassionate. And we hope by the end of today that you can be able to choose that new inner voice of compassion. Okay, that's amazing. I will never forget my, the hand with the breathing. Like while you were doing it, I'm like, I'm doing it. I'm like, I feel so calm. <laughs> this, this is so good. Take five is amazing. And it's so good. Child, and it's something that a parent could do to a child too and calm them before yeah. bed. Amanda talked about biking, you know, four, seven, eight before her go to sleep. Really, the take five, a parent could do that. It's like tickling the back, X marks the spot. It becomes... Yeah a dyadic kind of exercise and it's teaching breathing at the same time and togetherness. My question is, As a parent, how do you know if your child is just sad or if they're actually depressed? So if you find that they are sad or depressed or you're trying to prevent them from being sad and depressed and you really want them to see that third party, can you make them do that? Like, I, can, I can start with, with regards to the question about depression. It's a very good one because you're absolutely right. When we think about you know, straight symptoms of depression, there is a lot of overlap when we think about what happens when a child is going through treatment, right? Symptoms of depression involve things like changes in sleep and changes in appetite and all sorts of things that we know are just straight up side effects of, of treatment. Um, so really when I'm thinking about, you know, is a child experiencing the normal ups and downs that one would expect as they're adjusting to a diagnosis and treatment, which of course we are going to expect those ups and downs, versus are we really looking at a depression? I really think about impact on functioning and functional impairment, which is a psychologist's way of saying how much 
is, is this, meaning the mood changes, how much are they getting in the way of this kid's life? How much is it getting in the way of this child being a kid, doing the things that they wanna be doing, doing the things that we need them to be doing? So is, is the child's mood or the child's mood changes making it difficult for them to sleep? making it difficult for them to participate in the activities they want to be participating in, making it difficult, is it impacting their relationships with their friends, with their brothers and sisters? How much is it getting in the way of their life? And if you're starting to see that impact on functioning, that's really when the red flags get raised for me, okay? And that can look different depending on the situation. The other thing that I look to is, is it impacting their care as well? So are they able to participate in their care in the way that we need them to? Mm -hmm. So taking their medications, participating in physical therapy, those kinds of things, that can be, you know, that can be challenging as well. So there's, those are some of the things that I sort of zero in on when you can't rely on some of the straight up diagnostic criteria to be the differentiators. Lori, would you add anything to that? That was excellent. Um, the only thing I would add is that we get a lot of consults on the inpatient unit for children who are depressed. And when we do our evaluation, um, they may look depressed. They may have their head under the covers. They don't want to talk to anyone that's going in. They want to sleep through their treatment. They don't want anyone else coming in and telling them what to do because they felt like such a loss of control. People ask about their pee and their poop and they just, you know, they're tired of it all. Then I see what they're like when they're outside of the hospital. And oh, they're at the mall, they're out with their friends, they're having a great time. Well, then I'm not worried about them being depressed. They're clearly having, adapting to their illness and they found a way to be able to do that in the inpatient setting, unless, as Amanda said, it's interfering with their ability to get their treatment. They're refusing treatment or finding their pills are being hidden in different places, which we that happens. So I think that it's important that we look at how their behavior is when they're in a medical setting and versus what their behavior is like outside of it. And as Amanda said, really careful look at changes in appetite and, and changes in sleep that may not be related to their medication. And also if they're on steroids or not, steroids. that could absolutely change mood and behavior. And we also look at, you know, how long has this been going on? And so in our world, if it's not going, if it's going on for a week, we're not concerned. If it's going on for two or more weeks and they really lost interest in things that they were once interested in outside of the hospital, that's a red flag for us. But that gets really tied into your next question. So what do you do? <laughs> and it's what about for the siblings? And then we haven't really talked about that at all today. Um, so they've already identified as, you know, the problem patient, you know, they're the person who has the cancer, they're tired of it, everything gets wrapped around them and their care, which may make their brothers and sisters resentful, and they feel awful that their parents are stressed, and, they, and their brothers and sisters may be stressed. And so when you talk about counseling, if they're open to being able to find somebody um, that they could be able to talk to, and it may be a child life specialist, or it may just be the coach, or it may be going to be able to get counseling from the psychologist or a social worker, or somebody they could be able to relate to, that's great. But sometimes you think about doing something as a family, so they're not the identified patients. It could be like, I'm having a hard time, and I want to be able to learn how to be able to help the family. And sometimes it becomes a little less threatening to be able to have a family session. I also like just putting a box in the room, you know, that it, it could be a worry box. So, you know, let's, before you go to bed at night, we're gonna put our worries in the box so we can just not have to take them into our sleep with us. Um, 
I know Amanda talked about gratitude and things that you could be, you know, have gratitude for. So important, great data for that. But it's also not carrying those worries. So they may not want to say it and they're not going to tell you. They may post it before you ever know. And but it can be something they could be able to just put in a box. This is my worry. And eventually they'll let you look at those, but they won't tell you. Some people are very emotive, as we talked about before, and other people who are going to really keep it all in. So I, I had kind of an, an unusual experience with, with osteosarcoma in that I was a patient, you know, grown up in the pediatric cancer center. So there were two things that, that were my takeaway from, from that's relevant to this conversation that were so interesting to me. And that was the first one was when I asked the kids, like, what's the hardest part about this for you? Cause like, I'm, I'm struggling and you seem really happy. And they said the hardest part of going through this treatment and, you know, of course they're amputated. They're, you know, they're so sick. They're so sick with so much chemotherapy. They said the hardest part for them is being sick and looking at their parent, looking at them and knowing that they're causing their parents pain. That's the hardest part. These kids have had limbs cut off and their life taken away from them. And they're sicker than any humans I had ever seen in my life. And their greatest pain is the emotional pain that they're causing their family. So knowing that what do you do as a parent? Do you have any thoughts on that? And then I have a second thing to say about that. Well, I think that's definitely where having an objective person to talk to can be really helpful because we do know that children, teenagers will absolutely mask some of their emotions to protect their parents. They know that their parents are worrying and they don't want to add to that worry. And so they will say, I'm fine. I'm doing fine. And that may not actually be how they're feeling, you know, they, or they may be experiencing some worries and concerns, but they're, they, they don't want to add to that. So having someone to talk to, whether it be, you know, the social worker, the psychologist, the child life specialist in the hospital or someone outside the hospital, that's where that objective third party, that person that they know that there's a confidential relationship with, they can share those thoughts and feelings with. I think that's where, that's exactly why that relationship is, is, is designed. That's what it's designed to be. The last thing I'll say, and I'll end on a, on a kind of a, a, for me, it's a happy note. One of my favorite questions to ask is, if there were a magic, a magic pill that said, here you go, now that you've gone through this, if I were to give you this, this pill and you could take it and this never would have happened, would you take that pill? Would you let this cup pass from you? And the answer 100% of the time is I wouldn't give it back. I would go through this every single time because I'm a better person now. I know who loves me. I know who's there for me. And it's, uh, you know, every time I, I share this with a parent of a child who said this, the parent like can't believe it. That's a profound thing. And I've, I've asked this of eight-year-olds who have gone through osteosarcoma and they say, no, I, I, would, still, I would still have this experience because I'm better for it. It, just, it's, it blows me away every single time I get the yes, even though 100% of the time I get the yes. That's incredible. And I, you know, I always say I wouldn't be able to 
still be in this field 15 years later, and I'm sure Lori feels the same way, if it weren't for the incredible resilience um, that these children and adolescents show us time and time again. And I think that's really, you know, that, that's what that story shows and just the capacity for being able to find meaning through just incredibly challenging circumstances. Um, right. it's, it's truly remarkable. And that's why that first slide that we showed is I was going to say that, yes. Trauma is life-changing. Nothing is the yes. same. I'll never be the same person again. And gratitude can come from unexpected places. Dr. Amanda Thompson and Dr. Lori Weiner, um, really, really great osteobites. Uh, want to share that uh, on next week's Osteobites, we are really looking forward to having Dr. Jason Eustein with us. He's an MD, PhD from uh, Baylor College of Medicine, and he's an associate professor at Department of Pediatrics there, the hematology oncology branch. Um, he's a regular factor speaker, and he's going to be talking to us about modeling and targeting MIC-driven osteosarcoma. Really an interesting topic and a very relevant topic topic for relapsed uh, osteosarcoma. Uh, finally, the most comfortable t-shirt ever can be yours. <laughs> um, if you choose to outrun osteosarcoma with us or outwalk or outcrawl or outcrutch or outroll, you can sign up on our website. You get a t-shirt and this um, really fabulous cape because you're a superhero. Um, we would love it, of course, if you if you had donations from your friends and family, but we'd really love it more if your friends and family joined you and you asked them to walk with you virtually. You can sign up on our website, mibagents.org, and um, just there's a search bar at the top and you just put in outrunning osteosarcoma. So thank you for joining us today. Thanks especially to our guests, Dr. Lori Weiner and Dr. Amanda Thompson. Stay safe, everyone. If MIB agents can be of help to you, please let us know. Together, we make it better for osteosarcoma kids everywhere. Now go out, run osteosarcoma. August Osteobites are awesome, featuring osteosarcoma experts, Dr. Jason Eustein, Dr. Richard Gorlick, and Dr. Kurt Weiss. Until next Thursday, please use your powers for good for kids with osteosarcoma. Visit our website at mibagents.org.